Welcome to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. We are jumping to Queen's Park, where Dr. Barbara Yaffe is taking questions from the media. I'm under the impression that the guidance is still work from home if you can. So where, where do we stand on all that? Well, I believe the Ministry of Labor actually has some very um, detailed um, guidance on their website for uh, lots of different specific kinds of workplaces. So that would be something that each workplace should be checking with the Ministry of Labor website and or calling them for, for advice. Um, in general, um, certainly staying home is, is uh, safer than, than going to the office. But if you are going to the office, if it's required, um, or recommended by your workplace, then um, basically the f same measures are, are recommended. Don't go to work if you're not feeling well. Um, they should be screening people when they come in. Um, good hand hygiene, washing your hands well uh, and often, making sure there are facilities available close by. Uh, social or physical distancing, trying to make sure that people are sitting at least two meters apart. And if that isn't possible, to be wearing uh, cloth uh, cover, face coverings or masks. Um, so those measures are pretty basic for any, any uh, inside uh, space and certainly would include offices. But again, I think uh, getting advice from the Ministry of Labor is always useful in these circumstances. Follow up. Okay, thanks, Doctor. Yeah, just to switch gears. Um, in terms of Windsor Essex, uh, it looks like you're, you want at least one more week of data. Ha, have they progressed at all, uh, or is it more or less static and you're waiting until next Monday to, to make the, uh, the decision? Uh, we are working very closely with Windsor-Essex. In fact, um, we have daily phone calls with their medical officer of health and uh, chief executive officer and daily reports. Um, we have sent out the uh, EMATS uh, unit to uh, help coordinate uh, care. And uh, uh, as well, Ontario Health is, uh, restart, has restarted doing the testing on farms as well. So um, the health unit is working very hard with the community, with the farmers, um, in terms of case and contact management, outbreak management. And I would say things are slowly improving, um, but they're not quite there yet. Uh, in terms of the criteria to go to stage two, uh, we want to be extra careful and not have to go backwards in the future. Uh, the, as you know, the kinds of things we look at are a two to four week reduction in cases, um, uh, the incidence tracking capacity, which is good, uh, the health system capacity and the public health unit capacity. Uh, the numbers are, are slowly um, going in the right direction, but they haven't quite got where they need to be yet, and we're working very closely with them. Next question. Will be from Michelle McQuig at the Canadian Press. Please go ahead. Please unmute your line, Michelle. Hi, Dr. Yaffe, can you hear me? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Oh, sorry for the delay. Uh, Dr. Yaffe, a question for you about the province's back-to-school plan. Uh, you've likely heard a number of concerns being raised by parents about the physical distancing measures or lack thereof in classes that are not going to be changing size in any way. Um, the sick kids report that is the basis of the provincial plan uh, does seem to advocate for some degree of physical distancing when possible. And today, the federal health officials, Dr. Tam and Dr. New, were also saying the same thing, that, that the school environment ought to be optimized to allow as much physical distancing as possible. 
Where do you fall on that question, and do you feel the government plan is up to scratch in that respect? Uh, yes, I, I, I understand that this is one of the areas that people are uh, concerned about. Um, and I certainly understand concerns uh, about children's health. We all know that the most important thing for children right now is to get them back into school uh, for their uh, social, physical, mental health, their learning, uh, and so on. So uh, I believe at this point we've put into place uh, quite reasonable measures. Uh, in fact, they are stronger than most other provinces have put in place. Um, in terms of physical distancing, uh, two meters is optimal. Um, the Sick Kids report actually does talk about one meter maybe as good. Uh, we are hoping for two, but uh, I think I think that everybody will be very aware of the need for distancing, uh, for trying to move kids' desks as far apart as possible, um, keeping in mind that kids may not always <laughs> follow that. That is, it's only one of the measures. We're going to be cohorting. Uh, we're going to be uh, ensuring screening. So hopefully sick kids or staff do not go to school. Um, and um, hand washing facilities. Uh, so there'll be multiple uh, measures in place uh, in addition to as much uh, social distancing as possible. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see how it goes. Um, if there's any cases reported, we, we will certainly follow up immediately. And if, the, if things need to be changed, uh, certainly that will be something we'll look at. But I think at this point, as I say, it's probably, probably we've got more measures in place uh, than other provinces. So um, we're very hopeful that uh, schools will be able to reopen and kids will be able to stay healthy and safe as, long as, as well as their staff. Follow up. Thank you. Uh, yes, on a similar subject, a lot of the school boards are still finalizing their specific back-to-school plans, but the Toronto District School Board has released a draft version. And one of the measures that they're uh, planning to proceed with is to get rid of sports until further notice, until cleared to go ahead by provincial health officials. Uh, that seems to be somewhat at odds with the guidelines governing Stage 2 and 3 that have had sports resuming for a while. Do you sanction the approach of getting rid of sports for the school year, or are there potential drawbacks for kids that might have been looking to this as part of a return to normal? Well, I mean, it, we aren't really calling it a return to normal. Uh, we're going back to conventional school uh, scheduling as much as possible, but it's not going to be normal. Uh, kids from grade four and up will be required to wear masks. Under that, parents will be encouraged to have their kids wearing masks. Staff will be wearing masks. Um, lots of other things won't, uh, there won't be any mass uh, gatherings or auditoriums. So it's not a return to normal. Um, we are still in a pandemic. So uh, I think uh, not having sports at this point is reasonable. Certainly if they want to do something, they can uh, submit a plan to us to review. Um, and we would see if it makes sense in terms of uh, preventing and controlling the spread of infection. Next question, and this will be the last question. Will be from Cynthia Mulligan at City News. Please go ahead. Hi, Dr. Yaffe. I was hoping you could clarify a comment that you made on Thursday. It's, it's causing quite a furor on social media. Uh, I asked you about why teachers wouldn't be tested in schools as a precautionary measure, and you responded by saying in part that uh, just under 50% of tests in low-risk areas were false positives. 
Could you explain that further for me? Because I, I really don't understand. Are, are you saying that in areas that are out of hot zones, that there are a lot of false positives? So, yes, I, I understand that there's um, some, some lack of clarity. Um, we are talking about a test um, that is a screening test, basically. And uh, so we're testing, if we are testing people who, um, we have a population that has no COVID or very little, the prevalence is extremely low. Um, and you test somebody and you get a positive, uh, actually, in fact, I think over 50% of those positives will be false positives. So in those instances, uh, there will be a second test recommended, and the second test will often then be negative. So that will be ruled out as a case. If the second test is positive, uh, then there will be considered a case. Um, if the test is done in a population where there is COVID, uh, as the prevalence or how common the infection is goes up, the positive predictive value of the test goes up. So that is, uh, what are the chances, if you have a positive test, what are the p chances that, that the person actually has the infection? The chances go up as the prevalence of the infection goes up. So it depends on how common the infection is, and it also depends on the, how good the test is, the sensitivity and specificity. So we have a pretty good test. But if we're doing it in a population where COVID is rare, the positive predictive value is very low. And that's why it has to be repeated. And uh, if it's false, it will not be reported in IFAS. It will not be counted as a case. Follow-up, this is the last question. Okay, thank you. So I'm assuming it's not falsely inflating the numbers. Uh, my next question is, again, about distancing. And, and parents of young children in elementary are understandably extremely concerned about the distancing and you yourself mentioned uh, how sick kids was was hoping for uh, greater distancing yet in the government uh, docs there's no mandate for physical distancing is that because it's simply a practical measure that there isn't enough classroom space to to increase distancing among elementary students and that it's just impossible to actually uh, do? Or is it because you genuinely feel that that's, it's going to be safe enough? Well, as I said, I, the Sick Kids document actually uh, mentions one meter, uh, maybe as good as two. We, we're sticking with two, but uh, it's, it's uh, somewhat heartening to know that uh, the uh, pediatric experts are, are kind of uh, saying two, one may be maybe oh, good enough. Um, I think there were many considerations uh, in, that, that had a role in uh, making the decision um, around the uh, classroom size. And I think um, the bottom line is uh, we, from public health point of view, want as much social distancing as possible. We want everybody to uh, be screened. We want everybody to not go to school or work if they're sick. We want everybody to wash their hands um, and keep away from other people as much as possible if they're not in their social bubble. And we'll have to see how it goes with the schools. Thanks, everyone. 
You've been listening to the Tuesday briefing this week from Dr. Barbara Yaffe, uh, co-medical officer of health for the province of Ontario, giving an update after the weekend, the long weekend. They obviously did not do a briefing yesterday because of the holiday. Uh, There is another briefing scheduled for Thursday, as they do them now, usually Mondays and Thursdays, this week, Tuesday and Thursday, apparently. So there you have it. She was taking some questions there uh, about uh, state of affairs here in the province. We are going to take a really quick break for traffic and weather. Then we will be right back on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show, London. I'm your host, Jess Brady. This is, of course, Tuesday, the 4th of August. Be prepared for a whole week of people not knowing what day it is. <laughs> it seems like it is always the way after a long weekend. Everybody's discombobulated. You don't know what day it is. Yesterday, actually, no, Sunday was very strange because it was like, what day is it? Am I going back to work tomorrow? No, I'm not. It's Sunday. I usually would have the Sunday scaries, but no, you don't actually because you have another day off thanks to the long weekend. Woohoo. Good stuff. I hope you had a nice long weekend. Hope you uh, didn't get rained out from whatever you had planned. It certainly was a soggy one, uh, especially from like Saturday night on. Initially, we had all thought that uh, this was going to hit mostly Sunday and yesterday. But as it turns out, no, Saturday night started with a deluge of rain then, which was unfortunate. Uh, Spoiled some plans that I had to see friends outside. So we had to scrap that. But that's okay. We'll do it another time. That's all that matters. Just everybody staying safe and uh, doing what they should be doing. But yeah, no, it was a good a good long weekend. I enjoyed it. And I hope that you did as well, like I said. Uh, I hope that it's been a gentle re-entry into the work week for you if uh, you are, in, in fact, heading back into work or were heading into work today. Sometimes it can be hard to get going again after a few days off. It's always a nice treat to have that time. Uh, but we are jumping headlong into things today. We have a lot on the go for today for this show. Uh, coming up at 3.35, we have a chat with Lauren Reed. She is, of course, the president of the Privacy Pro. What are we talking about? The COVID Alert app. Yeah, I downloaded that the other day. Uh, I hadn't been outside of my house since it had launched. Uh, and so I think it was Saturday uh, that I that I downloaded it while I was at home. Relatively quick and painless. Uh, not, a, not a tough thing to set up. Uh, but we will be chatting with Lauren Reed about, uh, guess, some reaction to the app so far. It's been out for a few days now. What are people saying. There are some really uh, valid criticisms that have been uh, leveled at the app. There were concerns before it even launched, uh, but there are some I guess, points to be made about accessibility on this app. Who can actually download it? And, uh, you know, the concerns about how it functions. So Lauren Reed coming up at 335 is going to get us all up to date on what COVID alert is doing and what you need to know about it. And both Lauren and I have it on our phones. I know from uh, seeing a smattering of posts online that uh, a bunch of people have it now locally. They've uh, been talking about it. And uh, yeah, Lauren's going to get us up to date. We've spoken about it previously uh, about the app and uh, as it was being developed and before it launched officially, but this will be a good chat, getting you up to date on everything you need to know about it. Later on in the half hour that's coming up, we're checking in with Gord Lesser from Ingersoll. He is the Ingersoll BIA Counselor Representative. Ingersoll's BIA has a new initiative that they've launched in an effort to get people to shop locally. Um, Obviously, as everybody knows, local businesses have been hit really hard by COVID-19. And so Ingersoll is trying to get people to buy their BIA bucks. Yeah, so we have downtown dollars here in London. Well, they have BIA bucks. And so Gord Lester is going to come on and chat with us coming up at about 3.48 to get us all up to date on what this initiative is all about but also how Ingersoll is doing in general. Next, 
you've we've hear these stories all the time. And it's always discouraging because I feel so terrible for the people who uh, fall victim to online scams. And there's a story out of St. Thomas, uh, and it has to do with an 83-year-old senior who was unfortunately duped out of a large sum of money through an online scam. It's really, you know, heartbreaking because that's the last thing you want is to see anybody taken advantage of, um, especially in a way like this where... They're preying on your uh, inability to, you know, understand tech things. And it's and it, this can happen to everybody, right? Uh, people of all ages, of all abilities with tech stuff uh, can fall victim to these sorts of things. But I especially, you know, my heart breaks when it's a senior uh, just because they're a vulnerable population. So I figured, why don't we talk about this a little bit more? Have used this as an opportunity to have a refreshers course on some online safety stuff. So Jeff Thompson, who is a senior RCMP intelligence analyst with the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre is going to be chatting with us coming up right after four o'clock this afternoon, uh, talking about this case and also what we need to do to protect ourselves and what can happen if we find ourselves in a situation like this. Just essentially how to better arm ourselves against, you know, winding up in a, in a, a pickle where you're giving away thousands of dollars. Don't do it. Not a good idea. Please do not. Also, one of the biggest stories of the day uh, is the explosion earlier on in Beirut in Lebanon. Absolutely incredible footage of this explosion that's taken place. And obviously our, our hearts and thoughts are, are with uh, any of the individuals uh, who are, are, you know, hurt or suffering in this moment because the devastation is widespread. Uh, images that I've seen on Twitter, video of the blast itself, of the aftermath, it's just, it's gut-wrenching. And it's a sight to behold in the worst way, um, this explosion, like the mushroom cloud and everything. It's it's insane. It's wild. Um, so we are going to keep you up to date with the latest information coming out of Beirut uh, this afternoon. Andrew Graham will have it in your newscasts, and we'll talk a little bit later on around 4.35 and, and uh, get some reports from some global correspondents who are following this very carefully. Uh, we'll check in with uh, Crystal Guman Singh, who's been filing reports from overseas, as has Redmond Shannon. Uh, so we'll we'll check in and, and hear some reports from them uh, and, and find out what the latest is, because it, it truly is just a, a shocking uh, situation that's taken place, and we'll get you up to date on the latest of what's happening there. Also, checking in again with Glenn Pearson, co-executive director of the London Food Bank. They took delivery of the materials for their greenhouse at the end of last week at the food bank. And construction is going to take a couple of weeks, it sounds like. But Glenn's going to come on and talk to us about why this is so cool and why it's so important that we have this greenhouse now that's being set up at the food bank. Really neat stuff. Glad to be able to chat with him about that. Also, researchers at Western have uh, put out some information about Mars. That's right. We were just talking about a red planet a couple of weeks ago uh, when we were looking at uh, what it would take to sustain life there. Well, researchers at Western say that they've found out some information about what kind of water was on Mars many, 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 many years ago. So we'll be talking with Gordon Ozinski, who is the co-author of this study and also the director of Western's Institute for Earth and Space Exploration. That's coming up at 5.35. But right now, we have your 3.30 news package coming up with Andrew Graham. When we come back, we're talking COVID alert with Lauren Reed. That's coming up next on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. Before the break, I told you we were going to talk about the recently launched COVID Alert app. Yeah, 
went live at the end of last week. I installed it on my phone over the weekend. And a lot of other people have as well. I've seen people talking about it. Uh, There obviously has been a lot of buzz in the news over this app, uh, you know, talking about uh, the pros and cons of it, some criticisms that are out there uh, regarding the app. And uh, we're going to talk about a a good chunk of of all of those things. And we're going to have that conversation with Lauren Reed, who joins me on the line now. She's the president of the Privacy Pro. And I'm going to say a friend of the program because we chat so much (laughs) now, Lauren. I, I'm glad that we're friends because uh, we've been talking about this COVID app since, I think, March, yeah. no, April, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so excited that we get to continue the conversation because things are evolving, um, I think, very, very quickly. I realized that our last conversation was in May and I could not believe it was that many months ago. Right. It seems like time <laughs> just like absolutely flies. Uh, and it's hard to keep track of when I last talked to people about certain subjects. <laughs> it's it's a bit <laughs> insane. I've, I always try to, I, I think initially I underestimate how long or how short a time ago a conversation was. And then I look back in my notes and I say, holy cow, that was two months ago. Yeah, yeah. It's the time of of the Rona, and it's playing tricks with our minds. But uh, certainly we have new information about uh, the COVID Alert app, which which launched on Friday. And it seems like there's some pretty good buy-in so far. Yeah, I think I saw statistics that like 1.18 million Canadians have already downloaded the app since just Friday when it was released on a long weekend. So that's uh, pretty successful, if you ask me. Yeah, no doubt. And I, like I, as I said, I'm, I'm one of those individuals. I, I went into the app store the other day and it was a pretty quick and painless process to download it. Yeah, I downloaded it as well. And I was very impressed with how uh, informative it is, how you kind of go through all these steps and have it explain to you how your data is going to be used, um, what they're going to do with it, what happens if you um, if you find out that you have been exposed, et cetera. Just the user experience of this is uh, really raising the bar on what we should be expecting from apps when it comes to being transparent about how they're using our data. Yeah, and I like that it, it did try to uh, kind of calm any fears as it talked about how these uh, key codes work and, and just the process in general, trying to say that, you know, we're not using your data, like your your location mm-hmm. data. It's really about these codes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's kind of technical. And, um, you know, it's I think it's really important to explain things both at that really technical level and then also at... Uh, more accessible level for people like me that um, I I don't know how to read code in an app, but I really do care about the use of my data. And so I think they've done a great job with that, explaining why we should be comfortable with our privacy in downloading this app. And then they give you all this technical information so that anybody can go and review it. They actually make the source code available on the internet. So anybody who understands how to read source code can go and dig through it and see if, you know, if the app says we're not using your location data, most times with most apps, we just have to trust that whatever they put in that, you know, 10 page privacy policy is what they they do what they say they're going to do. But in this case, they've actually made it possible for whether you're an expert, whether you're a critic, and I think that's really important that critics can go and download it because you know that people would find something wrong when they're looking for it. And so it just adds to the transparency and security of this app. It's almost 
crowdsourced in a way um, because anybody who found a vulnerability would be reporting on it right away. Which I think is a good thing to do to make this, because uh, as you've said, usually it's like these big companies and you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. Um, so in this way, you could have someone looking at it from, uh, you know, a benevolent standpoint being like, hey, that's an issue. Let's point this out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would say, you know, like there's, you know, we've talked about this several times together. There's a lot of... Um, news coverage here in Canada, but if you look around the world at all of these digital solutions for contact tracing, you know, we talked about the API from Google and Apple. They're all talking about these different approaches and they use them interchangeably. So this one is called COVID alert. And I I think that everybody should go and look. I, first of all, I think everybody should download it. Second of all, I think that people should go and learn a little bit about how their data is used but I, I advise people to focus on the words. The words are very important. This is an exposure notification app. It is not a contact tracing app. And that's a really important difference because the contact tracing app is where you, um, you use your location data and public health uses that to track where you've been and then go and notify people um, and assess like how these outbreaks uh, traveled around a, a physical place, but that is where they know who you are and where you've been. And that that's a thing, but that's a separate thing. This is just an exposure notification app, so it doesn't use your location data. It's just using these codes that you mentioned on your phone to, in a completely anonymous way, tell you whether you may have been exposed to somebody that also has... Um, has the app, and then who has voluntarily chosen to put their details um, if they got, if they got, uh, or sorry, I, I misspoke. They voluntarily decided to disclose that they had a confirmed case of COVID, mm-hmm. but they didn't put their personal information. They didn't put any of their identifying details. And so you will never know who or where you were exposed. Um, so you might be at the store and somebody else, you know, or maybe not at a store somewhere you're spending some time. Maybe you went and hung out on a patio since we're uh, able to do that now and you were exposed to somebody. It's not going to say that you were exposed on this date at that time. Even it really protects the um, privacy of yourself as well as, you know, somebody who uses the app to disclose that they were tested positive. I think that for most people, this is, um, you know, a reasonable uh, amount of information to to be putting out there. But I, I know that there are some people who are concerned uh, about even the key codes and, and things like that, that there is um, some someone that I was talking to earlier today said, yeah, but on Android phones, you have to turn on your location services to even be able for this to work. And I, I don't have an Android, so I, I couldn't speak to, to speak to that uh, per se. But I, I kind of, in my conversation with them said, you know, I feel that most people feel like this is a reasonable amount of information to be putting out there, given the goal is so oriented to public health. And, you know, you give out information, way more information to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff with no public health goal. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up the issue with Android and the location services, 
so uh, as I mentioned, this is all going very fast. And, mm-hmm. and why is that just specific to Android? And this is what I mean by people have been able to go and investigate and look at why this is happening. Because on Android phones, way before the pandemic was even on our minds and this kind of technology was on our minds, Android's operating system said that if you turn off your location, then probably you also wanted to turn off your Bluetooth. And they were um, they were bundled together, if you will. So it is it needs your Bluetooth to work. And Bluetooth is only like it it measures kind of and connects to devices or things within a radius of you. It has no idea where that radio radius is. Like you and I could both um, you know, decide to travel to some tropical place and our Bluetooth would connect with each other and it wouldn't know where we were. But location services obviously does. And so there is a very valid concern around having your location tracked. However, the reason why that is in the, uh, why that's required right now is because those two things were linked. And Google has actually said that the next release is going to make it possible to not have them. So it's just kind of catching up uh, from old technology. And I think, too, that that kind of covers off some of the other criticisms related to accessibility that, you know, not all cell phones can carry this right now because of age restrictions. And there are hopes that, you know, those those concerns will also be will be, you know, handled as time goes on. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this just came out on Friday and there's definitely a lot of criticism because, yeah, your phone has to be less than five years old. So there's a whole bunch of people. Well, first of all, you have to have a smartphone Mm -hmm. and then you have to have a pretty new smartphone and have downloaded the new operating system. But this is I understand the criticism and I agree that it's really important that we find solutions that are available to everyone it's not an intentional decision on the part of the Canadian government to say, like, we only care about people with new phones. Mm-hmm. It's really a technological limitation. Um, they needed to get this out. Uh, they built it on the Google and Apple API, which has also been reviewed extensively. And most people, uh, well, everybody, I think, in the technology, privacy and security space have said that this is a good thing for privacy and security. And so... It's, but it's limited. But I think that, um, well, I, I, I think it was the right thing to do to get something out there. Mm-hmm. There's a quote, a phrase kind of that people use, which is that perfect is the enemy of good. Mm-hmm. And so iterating on this, it's, it's really kind of cool to see that the government is operating more like a startup or a tech company. And in fact, they partnered with um, Shopify and BlackBerry and they had a lot of advisors from the private sector and academia and all of these experts helping to guide them. And one of the principles of innovation in, in tech companies is that you try something and then you iterate on it. And normally I would say, uh, this is health data. This is not a place to just experiment, but it's not health data. It's just these codes. Mm-hmm. So to me, the way that it's been built uh, to protect our privacy makes this uh, where we're not having to make a trade-off, where we're able to say, okay, we built privacy into this app, and now we can see how well it works. We can iterate on it. We can try to find solutions that are more accessible. But if we were to wait and do nothing while we looked for a solution that works for everything, I don't think that we would be, uh, you know, I don't think we'd be making progress on this ever. 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a real uh, you know pickle that we have found ourselves in because this is a, a situation that uh, really needs expediency, um, but you can't you know sacrifice uh, too much privacy in that in that quest. But like you've said, it's it seems to be a pretty good balance, a pretty good trade off, and there's always uh, you know room for improvement, and they're going to keep doing that. And I am excited to have our next chat about this app, whenever that may be, whenever we have uh, <laughs> the next update on it, because I think it's really fascinating to see where this is going to go. Yeah, I I agree. I've got the app. You've got the app. I would encourage everybody to go download the app. You just search COVID. And there's a few COVID apps. And there's one that it's a white background with a little red thing in the circle. And it's by Health Canada. And it's so easy. It leads you through all of this technology information. It tells you what to do if you get a notification. And then if you download it, and you decide, I uh, just not really comfortable right now. You don't have to enable it. You could take it off your phone. Um, you always have choice in how you're using it and whether you're using it. Perfect. Well, I'm glad that we've had this chance to chat about it and give people a bit of a rundown on what's going on with COVID alert. As always, Lauren, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for your time today. Nice chatting with you. We'll talk soon. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. That's Lauren Reed. President of the Privacy Pro talking about the new COVID alert app from the uh, government, from Health Canada. It's out there now. It's in your app store, on Google Play, wherever you get your apps. We need to take a break. We'll be right back on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I am your host, Jess Brady. As we said earlier on in the program, obviously COVID-19 has taken a serious toll on local businesses uh, right across Canada, but especially here in our neck of the woods in southwestern Ontario, London, and many, many other communities in our area. And there's a push now. There has been from the very beginning to try and keep momentum going for local businesses as much as possible when we were in the real heart of the of the lockdown. But now that we are into phase three and reopening is well and truly underway, local officials are trying their best to foster business and make sure people are are coming in and supporting local as much as possible. And I got an email today, uh, and it was from downtown Ingersoll. They have a new initiative to try and support uh, their local merchants and businesses. And joining me on the line now to explain a little bit about what this is all about is Gord Lesser, who happens to be a councillor for the city of Ingersoll and also the Ingersoll BIA councillor representative. Gord, thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. It's great to chat with you about this. And any time that we can talk about uh, stories that are, are, are focused on supporting local businesses, we love to do it. And this is one of them. Tell us about uh, the BIA bucks. Okay, uh, exactly what you were saying earlier with COVID and everybody starting to open up uh, our local business improvement area. What can we do to help everybody out? So one of the things we came up with was BIA bucks. And what happens when a customer comes into one of four stores that are selling the BIA bucks, my store happens to be one of them, they can buy the BIA bucks for 80 cents on the dollar. So we have them in five, ten, $25 units. So a $10 unit costs the customer $8. We have so far 35 stores in our downtown area that are redeeming the BIA bucks. The customer redeems that ten dollars for ten dollars at that store so customers have always been great i'll say in downtown ingersoll of being very supportive like our local population 
And we were trying to think of a way, how can we give back to people who have struggled with COVID-19 financially? We know that's been some problems. So we thought, well, here's a way where you can save 20% on things that you're purchasing uh, throughout the downtown core. Now we have, I'll say, like our local grocery store uh, is involved, a couple of our pharmacies, alcohol, tobacco, and pharmaceutical drugs you can't use the discounted dollars on, (laughs) Um, but like other things at the pharmacy, um, a number of our restaurants, uh, and again, quite a few of the different retailers, pretty much if somebody is wondering who they can use them with, our BIA has a website through the town of Ingersoll, and it lists all the merchants who are accepting them at this time, and of course, we keep updating it as more come on board. That's fantastic. I, I think that's a great idea. And it's good for gifts, too, if you wanted to, you know, give someone a, a treat and say, hey, hit up a, your favorite patio or you know that they need a yep. little extra help. It's perfect. Well, it definitely is. Or you, we've even had a few merchants just to help promote them have bought some of the $5 ones and have given them out to customers. Um, you know, it, our local uh, ice cream shop is taking them. So, Certainly when you have a, I'll say, a young customer, uh, <laughs> we, we've had that a couple times where we're like, well, here's a $5 one in that they can go and get some free ice cream and that sort of thing. They think that's just fabulous. That's lovely. And yeah. it just shows, you know, the community spirit and uh, wanting to help people out through this tough time. Oh, definitely. You know, so and just to say the BIA had committed to do $50,000 worth of BIA bucks. Um, we will be talking shortly again as to whether we're going to extend that for another 50000 But um, I know people who have been using them, I'm going to use, I'll say, the grocery store because we all know that, that everybody's complaining groceries have gone up. And they're like, sure, if I'm spending $100 and it only costs me 80 yeah, it, it's a good deal for people. Yeah, no, it's it's great, and, and I'm hopeful that it'll help people out, both uh, those who are using the BIA bucks and also the businesses, uh, you know, bringing yeah. more people in and, and then hopefully drawing them back in afterwards again because they'll have a great experience when they go there the first time around or whatever it is, and uh, they'll be back to visit again. Oh, definitely, and, and we've seen that already where we've had, uh, as one of the stores selling them, I'll just say I've had a number of times where people have come in who are new either to Ingersoll or Ingersoll area or just visiting. They've heard about them. They're going to be in one of the other shops shopping and the store owners there said, well, like this is our promotion. So if you go to one of the the four stores that are selling them, you know, why not save yourself 20% on a purchase? Now, the I'll say the only restriction we have is no more than $200 worth of BIA bucks on a purchase. We're trying to spread the wealth around, obviously, and not have it disappear on one large purchase sort of thing in town. But, um, no, even people out of town have said, no, it's a great idea. So, yeah, if i got to walk a couple doors over to buy them and save 20% on my sale, why not? No, it's great, and I'm glad that uh, that you you folks there in Ingersoll have uh, come up with this initiative, and it's going well so far. It's been great to hear about it, Gord. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, anytime, and like I say, if anybody gets a chance, come on out to Ingersoll. we got a great little downtown, a fun place to visit, and we hope to see you soon. 
Absolutely. And I, I hope that lots of people will. This, this is the time to go and explore and, and take in our, our region as much as possible. Well, definitely. Everybody keeps talking about trying to support local mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And yeah, it's a time where we need to, like you say, look a little bit local because let's face it, we really can't travel. So yeah, find out what's in your back door. I'm just going to say, because we're all terrible for that, driving <laughs> past that thing right at near your house going, geez, someday I should stop and check that out. Yes. Well, now's the time to do it. Absolutely. Well, I am so glad that we've had a chance to talk about this, Gord. I so appreciate your time today and uh, can't wait to hear about how the BIA bucks go. No problem. We'll keep you informed. Thank you. Please do. You take care. You stay cool today. Thanks. Thanks, You too. Okay. Bye-bye. That's Gord Lesser. Ingersoll BIA Councillor Representative and uh, obviously a, a, a town councillor in Ingersoll. Many thanks to Gord. We need to take a break for our four o'clock news. That's right now on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. We often hear about scams online. Local police try their best to keep up with fraudsters. They are sneaky. And they are constantly coming up with new ways to try and dupe you out of your cash or your personal information. And unfortunately, there is a recent story that was uh, shared by St. Thomas Police. They put out some information on their website about an incident involving an 83-year-old St. Thomas man who wound up losing about $27,000 because of an online scam. So initially... His computer seemed to seems to have been infected with ransomware. Um, so either he opened like a bad attachment or clicked a bad link that he got in an email. And then the people behind that used the malware to freeze his computer. Then they posed as his antivirus provider trying to help him out. And they offered him a refund, but way too much. And they said to him, oh, no, we need you to refund. Give us back some of that money. And they asked him to withdraw three separate amounts of cash and courier that cash to an address in Newfoundland. The man did it, and then he found out that the money they'd inserted into his account was already gone. So he was out $27,000, which is a massive amount of money to most people, never mind also an 83-year-old. And seniors are, are vulnerable. They're on fixed incomes. That's... This is not money to just fritter away. Uh, and to have become a victim of a scam like this is, is really heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, my, my heart goes out to the individual involved. But I thought, you know what, this is a really good opportunity to try and save other people from running into this same problem. And joining me on the line now to talk a little bit more about what we can all do to protect ourselves and our loved ones is Jeff Thompson, who is a senior RCMP intelligence analyst with the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. Jeff, thank you, first of all, for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's great to chat with you. And anytime we can kind of arm people with information, I'm happy to do it. And this is one of those cases where I feel like it's good to do a little bit of a refresher course here. Yes, for sure. For sure. Um, I mean, if you want me to start here, yeah. ransomware, let's be clear here. So in this case, it's, it's, it's sounding like it might be a mixture of ransomware, but it, it also sounds like it just might be a malicious pop-up that, that the, the victim seen in this case. So ransomware is essentially a malicious software uh, that locks or malware or virus that locks people out of their computers and denies them any access to the computer. 
and there's a message there saying, you know, to get your computer back, you need to pay this many Bitcoin or this type of virtual, uh, you know, this much money in, in virtual currency usually. So in this particular case, I suspect it was a malicious pop-up that the, the victim received, uh, which again can make it difficult uh, for users to, to close their browsers or to exit their computers. So um, a little bit different than ransomware, but the pop-up would have said, you know, so, you know, a coercive or threatening message saying your computer is sending out viruses or, or malware and you need to call this number right away. Um, and once they do that, then they're connected to somebody that might claim to be a, a technician or a computer technician with a, a, a software company or a security company. Uh, that will request access to the computer. It will show. They will show them errors on their computer. That you know, all kinds of bad things are happening, and you and you need to uh, take steps to protect your money, or or you need to pay us to get your computer cleaned right away. And they really do prey on that sense of urgency, and you know, um, that sense that oh, you've done something wrong here, or your computer is doing something wrong, and it just puts people on the spot, and they want to fix it as soon as they can. Yeah, they're very authoritative. They're very threatening. They're, like I said, coercive. Um, you know, they, they make you feel uh, afraid, right? So, you know, whether it's elderly or young people, you know, uh, ultimately their goal is to get people to react. Um, and, and they're trying to instill that that psychological component of the scan that gets people to react, right? Urgency, fear, uh, coerciveness, uh, authority. You know, I'm Officer Thompson. You need to do exactly what I say, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, so they're very crafty with their scams. No doubt. And, uh, you know, and as this progresses, you know, as you've outlined there, it just kind of gets worse and worse and worse every step that you go along with it and until they're in your bank account or you're sending them money uh, to probably a bogus address in Newfoundland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so how they receive their money, you know, is is all sorts of different ways. We've seen, you know, cash in the mail or wire transfers or e-transfers or, uh, you know, people being directed to go out and buy prepaid gift cards or, or I already mentioned virtual currencies. So it's not unheard of that they're going to send money to to a physical address. Um, you know, it, it remains to be seen what's at that address, who received it and all that stuff. But uh, they do receive money a variety of different ways. It boggles the mind that, uh, you know, these sorts of things uh, happen uh, and and are so ingrained. Like there are are scams like this that happen all over the place and and people are not alone if they've fallen victim to this. And there can be obviously a real sense of of embarrassment or loss uh, at at that something like this happening. But it's important for people to know they, they get people all the time doing this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, so we really want people to take time to recognize, you know, recognize that the fraudsters are using email, the internet, internet pop-ups, uh, text messages, telephone to run their scams. Uh, beware of these unsolicited, you know, in this case, these unsolicited pop-ups saying your, your, your computer's infected or urgent action required. You know, anything that's urgent and, and asking you for personal or financial information or asking you to send money, uh, don't be afraid to say no. Do your research. Uh, take your time. Hang up or disconnect and, and talk to family members and friends. Uh, you know, never give out the personal information of these unsolicited offers. Never give people access to your computer remotely. So in this case, I suspect that the fraudsters may have taken control of his computer remotely and, and again, showed him errors or, or act, you know, asked him to access his accounts and do different things. So, so again, third parties that are asking access for your computer is another big indicator and just say no, right? Um, and, and ultimately, you need to know who you're dealing with. So... Um, these are sort of things to watch for. 
For sure. Yeah. And and uh, I guess, too, it's, it's just being on your guard and trying from the beginning to be pretty skeptical. Like you've said, don't don't rush to to do anything that you're being urged to uh, in a situation like that. Just take your time, take a deep breath, consider what's in front of you. And if you're not sure, maybe call somebody who might be a little more tech savvy uh, to help you out. Yes, especially when it comes to the computers, you know, deal with local technicians, uh, you know, we've also seen sort of these search engine optimization um, things happen where people, you know, they're having problems with their computer, they hop onto their, their internet and they do a search for a computer repair and they're calling, you know, that ad that's listed right at the top of, of the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some cases getting connected to, to nefarious people and criminals that are, that are going to say, look, you've got all kinds of problems with the computer, uh, it's sending up viruses and you need to pay us money right away. So. Um, th- there's lots to watch out for, but if you deal locally, deal with a local company when you need to get your computer fixed, uh, you're, you're running into less problems. Absolutely. And heaven forbid somebody does, uh, you know, run into an issue here where they, they may have been compromised. Uh, what's, what should be their first call? Where do they, where do they turn once they figure, oh, I'm in trouble here? Uh, local police. If, if you're a victim of fraud, you're a victim of crime, and you need to report this stuff uh, to your local police. Local police need to know what's happening in their communities, uh, and ultimately the, the start of an investigation uh, resides with, uh, with the local police. Uh, following that, you know, reporting the Anti-Fraud Centre is always a good step. Visiting our website to learn more about fraud and, and other steps to take. Uh, depending on the type of scam, you know, you may want to report if you've sent money in this case, you know, cash for the mail, trying to get a hold of Canada Post. Uh, to see if the package can be recalled, getting a hold of your bank, if money's gone through a bank transaction, or wherever you sent the money from, go to that service provider and, and see what steps they might offer to, to get the money back. Reporting to uh, email companies or internet service providers or, 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 or social media websites, you know, a lot of these places have uh, report abuse type links. Uh, and that's always a good step because they can take steps to block the fraud accounts if, there, if there's a need there, right? Um, and, and then again, the anti-fraud center. And if you're a victim of identity fraud, the, the credit bureaus are always a, an important step to, to put fraud or flag, flag your accounts for, for fraud. Um, so, so those are the key places to report. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today in going over uh, what are some really good strategies to, to better protect ourselves from uh, unscrupulous people out there on the Internet. Uh, I'm hoping that, you know, the individual in this case, maybe they can get some of that cash recovered and, uh, uh, you know, for their, own, for their own peace of mind and everything. But this has been a really good opportunity to talk about how we can all do better at protecting ourselves. And I thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for spreading the word. No worries. You take care, okay? All the best. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Jeff Thompson, Senior RCMP Intelligence Analyst with the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, talking about this case out of St. Thomas, where a senior, uh, unfortunately, was tricked out of $27,000 in an online scam. Just awful. And uh, again, our hearts go out to that individual and their family. And I'm hoping maybe they can get some of that back. Keep my fingers crossed for them. Maybe Canada Post can help them out with tracking it or something. I'm not sure. But I know that uh, obviously local police are looking into this case and uh, trying to spread awareness too and make sure that other people don't fall victim to it because it's, it's really heartbreaking. We need to take a quick break for traffic and weather. We will be back on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. This was a story that I came across uh, over the long weekend. It was, I believe, posted. I mean, a couple of outlets have this story, um, but I saw this on CNN. 
saw it first on Twitter, and they did a bit of a profile on a 28-year-old woman who is said to be the first COVID-19 survivor to receive a double lung transplant in the U.S. And her name is Mera Ramirez. And they just kind of talked about what happened to her and her experience with COVID-19 in the States. And I just thought it was an amazing story about, like amazing in the sense, not not the positive connotation that amazing usually has, but just that sense of of awe and wonder at how uh, everything that this young woman has gone through. And I'll just I'll just relay some of the information about her um, in this piece it says that Mayra Ramirez really was super careful the entire time leading up to her becoming ill. And she said that she took basically every precaution that she could. Right up until being admitted to a hospital in Chicago with COVID-19 symptoms. So she arrived at the ER of Northwestern Memorial Hospital on April 26th. And within minutes, giving her barely enough time to call her family, they wrote, her harrowing experience began. She said, all I remember was being put to sleep as I was being intubated and then six weeks of complete nightmares. Some of the nightmares consisted of a lot of drowning, and I attribute that to not being able to breathe, she said. So the virus really ravaged her body, took a really bad toll on her. Her lungs were irreversibly damaged, and her other organs were starting to fail too. And after she spent more than a month on a ventilator, her family flew in from North Carolina to basically say their final goodbyes to her because the doctors didn't think that she was going to make it. 28-year-old woman who had before this been relatively healthy by the sounds of it. And there was only one option to basically save her life, and that's a double lung transplant. So here's a quote from one of uh, her doctors. Without the transplant, she would not have made it. Dr. Ankit Bharat, the chief of thoracic surgery at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago, adding Ramirez had multiple complications linked to the virus. The fact that she was young and had otherwise been healthy, he says, made her a good candidate for the rare procedure. So here's a quote from Ramirez. She said, I looked at myself and I couldn't recognize my own body after waking up in the hospital after her procedure. I couldn't talk. I could barely lift a finger. I couldn't move. I was in a lot of pain. I was very confused. So Ramirez is now the first known American to have undergone this procedure after a battle with coronavirus. And according to a statement from Northwestern Medicine, um, that's that's the case to their knowledge. It's been two months now since her surgery, and she's at home recovering. She says she's still weak and struggling to breathe. And she's using basically this opportunity to tell people to take this seriously. And she said, this is not a hoax. This virus is real. It happened to me. And she is one of more than 4.6 million Americans who have been infected. And as of the last update yesterday in this this piece, uh, at least 154,000 Americans have died. Or people, I should say, in the United States have died. It just boggles the mind. And then you have... Uh, the interview with U.S. President Donald Trump and Axios with their correspondent, Jonathan Swan. And he says, you know, there are like a thousand people dying a day. And he says, it is what it is. Oh, 
Tell that to Miss Ramirez. It is what it is. I know that people would have fallen ill, but just the, the ineptitude of how this has been handled there and the lack of compassion and care is astounding from the American leadership right now. I know this is not the first time I've talked about it. We're actually going to talk about that interview with Axios tomorrow. Dr. Don Abelson's coming on. I emailed him earlier. He said, sure, let's talk about it. So that's going to be tomorrow afternoon. But I, I, I could not believe it watching some of the clips. Well, I mean, why couldn't I believe it? I mean, this is what we've been seeing for <laughs> four years, right? Jess, come on. But still, it is astounding to see it. The president of the United States speaking that way in an interview. Just remarkable. But I wanted to take just a few minutes here to tell you about Mayra Ramirez and her story. And she's 28 years old. And this virus caused her to have a double lung transplant. So please, if you're on the fence, if you're like, ugh, I don't want to put on my mask, please just do it. I know that we have much better compliance here in Canada and in Ontario. And for that, I'm truly grateful. But don't let your guard down. Because this virus, as we have said, can have really devastating impacts on a lot of people, no matter what level of health you're at. I've seen a male nurse who was in peak physical condition, weightlifter, just totally jacked. He fell ill with it. He was on a ventilator for at least a month and he lost, I don't know what, 70, 80 pounds, something like that. It was nuts. So I don't care if you're in peak physical condition, this can have devastating impacts. So it's just another reminder that we really do have to take this seriously. We also have to take seriously the need for our 430 News Break with Andrew Graham. That is right now on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. It's been a rather intense international news day. Usually is. I mean, every news day is is intense in one way or another. But today especially, uh, given news out of Beirut, Lebanon, of this just absolutely massive explosion that took place earlier on today, I could not believe it when I saw some of the footage. Uh, I initially just saw some tweets uh, from people who live in the region who are reporters who were then retweeted by other people saying that there had been a a massive blast. Some were just outside of the city and they felt it. Uh, Others were, I guess, there in their homes when it took place. And it was just insane to see uh, some of the footage. And we have a report from Global News' Crystal Goldman saying right now, kind of giving you the latest on, on the information that we have about what took place. It said that there may have been a problem at a fireworks factory, although those reports have not been confirmed. However, in video from the scene, you can see small explosions, small lights flickering in the main plume of smoke, and then a massive shockwave, a reverberation rises from the location. Officials in Beirut saying that this area has been devastated. The um, damage extends for several kilometers past the initial site. At this point, reports from the scene are limited just 
because of the huge scope of this emergency situation. Obviously, people are um, challenged getting close to the area to find out exactly what happened. Now, at this point in time, we don't know if this is just an industrial accident, a horrible industrial accident, or if there was something more. Of course, Lebanon has been challenged for many years, not only with their political situation, but of course, economically as well. We will, of course, continue to follow this story on global television and, of course, at globalnews.ca. Crystal Gamanson, Global News, London. So that's some of the latest information that we have about what took place earlier on today. Now, uh, in our coverage online at globalnews.ca and 980cfpl.ca, they are now saying that at least 50 people died in that blast and just like thousands more, possibly between like 2,500 and 2,700 people have been injured. And it's just a devastating scene. There are images now and footage of just the blast zone, and it is massive. It covers a wide area, and I I just cannot imagine being in that place right now and, you know, having your home totally destroyed. Um, I've seen some some video of of reporters that I follow on Twitter in the area that live in Lebanon and live in Beirut, and they're kind of walking through their apartments, and they're just, they're seeing the destruction. They have windows, like double-glazed windows that had even, like, metal shutters on them were blown into their apartment units. And uh, one 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 correspondent that lives there that I follow, um, she was saying that uh, her cats were okay. I think she has two cats. Um, and so she and, and someone else came back to the apartment. I'm not sure if it's her partner or if it's a friend who was with her. Um, but they just were kind of surveying the damage. And she kept saying, I, I don't know what we're going to do. Like, I don't know how, how do you handle something like that, that kind of damage. And uh, just thankful that she's okay and, and the cats are okay. And <laughs> You know, I I just we're so fortunate to have not had something like that happen in London to that scale. Obviously, there was the uh, explosion last summer, which gave us uh, just a taste of of that kind of uh, disaster. And I mean, that was obviously very traumatic for the neighborhood in Old East Village where that took place. But to have something of this scale happen, it's just, it's unthinkable. And uh, there are a lot of reports of hospitals that are now being um, just inundated with people looking for help. And I've heard that, you know, some, some have had to turn people away because they don't have the space or the capacity to help these individuals who who need assistance. It's, uh, you know, it, it's it's a massive situation that's unfolding. And as uh, Crystal alluded to, there are, you know, are a lot of unanswered questions about how this happened, what took place. Um, there are, you know, thoughts that it could be somewhat related to this fireworks factory, but an official with um, the Lebanese government has said that this took place in an area where explosive material has been stored, things that have been confiscated. This is where that happened in an area there. So obviously there's a lot of investigating that's going to need to happen. Uh, and there's a lot of footage online as well. So, you know, just if anybody is uh, sensitive to that type of imagery or video, please do, you know, be mindful of your well-being before you see and search out any of that uh, content. But it is uh, just a, a, a re- 
crazy, crazy thing to see. Um, and obviously, you know, our, our thoughts and, and West, best wishes are with individuals there right now. And I know the government of Canada has uh, tweeted out some information uh, talking about Canadians who may be overseas in Lebanon right now. And if they need assistance, consular assistance, there's a number for people to call. There's an email that people can reach out to um, and, you know, they can help out as much as possible the Canadian government and uh, certainly condolences are pouring in from uh, all sorts of world leaders. Uh, The Prime Minister has sent out a statement as well marking, you know, his condolences and uh, just the hopes for everyone to recover from this. And it is uh, just an unbelievable tragedy what's taken place and certainly we'll learn more about what's gone on in the days and weeks to come but uh, certainly we'll, we'll keep you up to date as uh, Crystal Singh was saying we'll have the latest here on our radio station and also on our website 980cfpl.ca and globalnews.ca on what's going on and I'm sure there will be lots more updates uh, to impart along the rest of the day and obviously into the evening as well so please do stay with us we'll bring you the latest as it becomes available. We are going to take a really quick break here for traffic and weather coming up momentarily. When we come back, we're checking in with Glenn Pearson, co-executive director of the London Food Bank. And the Food Bank has just received its new greenhouse. Yeah. We've actually talked about this a little bit, about the uh, efforts to uh, grow fresh produce that will then be uh, you know, distributed to food bank clients uh, so that they can have some really fresh fruits and veggies in, in their packages uh, of, of groceries that they get, because uh, that's a fantastic and uh, you know important part of, of healthy diets is having fresh produce, fruits and veggies, all that good stuff. So this the materials for the for the um, greenhouse. Like the word keeps escaping me for some reason. Greenhouse. Uh, the materials have arrived, and construction is uh, you know going to take a few weeks, I think, to to get this greenhouse up and running. Uh, but it's it's happening. It's a really cool step that's taking place. And so Glenn Pearson, co executive director of the London Food Bank, will be on to chat with me coming up after our break uh, for traffic and news. We'll get you up to date on everything you need to know that's happening here in the city and what the weather holds for you over the next. Uh, couple of days or so. John Wilson's got all the details. That's coming up right now on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. Now, we all know that one of the best parts of summer is that it's kind of the growing season and we have all sorts of fantastic fresh fruits and veggies that are piling into the stores from our wonderful farmers here locally and from elsewhere where we're reaping the benefits of all of their hard work in the fields. And this is something that is, like I said, kind of a staple of summertime, that beautiful fresh produce. And we're very lucky to have that here. But for some individuals who, you know, struggle with food insecurity, uh, it's not always easy to come by those types of, of foods. And that's where, you know, the food bank, the London Food Bank, comes in to help people out when they're struggling, if they're in a vulnerable spot. And they've done a great job of increasing the diversity of food that comes into into their facility and then goes out to their clients. And that's going to be even more improved with this latest addition to the food bank's property. And that's a greenhouse. Yeah, there was a tweet that went out uh, late last week from Glenn Pearson, who is the co-executive director of the London Food Bank. And he joins me on the line now to tell us more about the greenhouse, which is now on site. Glenn, thank you so much for coming back on the show. 
Thanks for covering it, Jess. Really appreciate it. Hey, anytime. And and again, this is one of those positive stories that we like to highlight. And uh, tell us a little bit about the greenhouse. When did it arrive exactly? Well, it, it arrived just uh, three, four days ago. Uh, it, it was late in arriving because after COVID uh, hit, uh, tons of cities across the country began buying up greenhouses as a way of uh, dealing with their own local food uh, security uh, problems. And uh, so when we tried to get one, they were out of sale. They were out of stock. So it took a little longer to get here. But it shows you that COVID is not just a greenhouse is a good idea, but it's going to be the way of the future for cities in general, not just London. Absolutely. I feel like uh, with so many different areas of our lives, we're looking more towards local solutions to uh, different different needs that we have for products, whether it be, uh, you know, food sources or other uh, other needs uh, for, for, for manufacturing products. We're looking much more closer to home uh, than previously. And, and this is a great example of that. That's right. I mean, we started it a year ago, the, the thought of it as to how we were going to do it. The best move we made was we got former uh, city uh, planning uh, manager, John Fleming, who had just retired. I had a coffee with him and said, why don't you help us to head up this project? He really wanted to do it as a volunteer. And uh, he's been remarkable. And he's had to go through all of the different layers of city approval, you know, the permits, all that kind of stuff. And it's been a lot of work for him. But, uh, you know, we're really thankful that it's now there and it will be constructed in a couple of weeks. The greenhouse itself is 30 feet wide by 70 feet long and 15 feet high. So we're going to get a lot of stuff stored in there. No doubt. And yeah, I was just thinking to myself that, uh, uh, you know, setting up a project like this, it's not the same or as simple as just going outside with a shovel and starting to dig something. No, no. Like there's a lot of rules you have to follow. That's right. I mean, the design of this one, though, is that we're looking to have the food bank kind of lead in building a number of these throughout the city so that neighborhoods, other businesses, let's say they want a greenhouse and they want to be able to help needy families. It doesn't have to be the food bank. But if we just go through all of this process, all of the permits, the variances, all of those things, and then in the end, we've got it all done, that the next group that comes along and wants to build, they don't have to go through that. So that's why it took us a year. Uh, But I will say it's been worth it in the end. But you're going to see a lot more of these greenhouses as the time goes on. It's fantastic. And I know that uh, people have really, um, those who take part in community gardens, you know, there are, are a few that are that are um, around the city and other areas of, of our region as well. They feel very passionately about tending to them and they're invested in making sure that they work out. There's a lot of love and care that goes into a project like this. And, uh, you know, you reap the results. Uh, and it's, it's sort of that old saying, you reap what you sow. And in this case, you're sowing nutrition and community involvement. Right. And John Fleming was the fellow that developed the urban agriculture strategy. Mm -hmm. And uh, he never got a chance to complete that before he retired. But it's really exactly what you're talking about. It's not just about businesses or a food bank having uh, a greenhouse like this. The greenhouses come in all shapes and sizes. But the food bank kind of wants to lead the way, perhaps providing some seed funding and other things to get neighborhood associations to build some in their own areas and to help, you know, needy families in their own areas. So I, I think this is the beginning of kind of a revolution, kind of a, a renaissance. And it's, it's taken its time in coming to London. But with John leading that charge, I think it will be great. It will cover everything from, you know, social services to businesses being able to grow and then donate to the food bank or other groups. And then neighborhood is, neighborhoods as well will be able to take part in all of that. At the end of the day, the London will be growing its own food a lot more than it does now.
It's pretty cool. I especially love the idea of, of businesses uh, having their own little greenhouse areas for uh, whoever within the company wants to uh, go in and, and maybe take a little break and, and tend to the plot a little bit and, and check on the plants. I, I think that would be a nice break for people during the day. They do. And, and, you know, businesses have lots or parking lots or whatever it is. They got land. If they want to do it, then the food bank would have to find a way of helping. We're going to hire probably a gardener, uh, you know, a greenhouse gardener. His full-time job is going to be just going around these greenhouses and helping them to go. Tanshaw College is entering into it. They're providing a whole bunch of stuff to help us with that. Perhaps we'll also make it part of their curriculum. But the idea is, is so the businesses don't have to spend all their time on it, but if they do have staff that want to go in and help out with community people in there and growing it, it's great. But it's the business who made their property available for the greenhouse. That's a real part of the success. If you don't get that, you don't get the greenhouse. It's true. Yeah, no, it's it's wonderful to see that people are, uh, you know, keeping the community in mind and recognizing how beneficial this will be for so many people. And it's sort of like, you know, the Grow a Row program that you have going there uh, as well, Glenn, you know, where people are are taking a little of their own space and using it to help others and, and just keeping that in mind. I love the I love the spirit of it. You know what's great about it, just to be honest, is that the, the food bank, you know, like I'd say seven, eight years ago, 30 percent of what we had is fresh. Now it's almost 60%. 60% of what we get donated is fresh, and 60% of what we give out is, is fresh. It's, it's almost at that level, and we'll be there soon. But the point is, we were just catching up to the community, just the very people that you're talking about, neighborhood groups, uh, you know, people that had a grow a row thing, a garden in their backyard or whatever it is. They were pressing the food bank to provide better food, and we were trying to find ways that, to make that happen. And then suddenly the community just transformed on its own, and the food bank had to catch up. That took place in just two or three years. You know, we went from 30% to suddenly 50%. Um, That's what food banks should be really, really good at. It's not so much just leading, but it's the ability to follow what the values of what your community is saying and trying to provide it. And that's all we did. We just lifted our sails and we hoisted the momentum the community was going in. And look how it's paid off. Now we're looking at greenhouses. It's pretty cool. And I'm excited to, you know, talk more about this uh, as the program really gets up and running and the greenhouse is all built. It'll be a really beautiful sight to see all of that happening and and around other areas of the city as well. Glenn, thank you so much for your time today and and sharing the latest updates on this. I appreciate it. It's great news during COVID, eh? so it's wonderful. (laughs) Thanks for covering it, Jess. Really appreciate it. Anytime. And I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Glenn Pearson co-executive director of the London Food Bank, filling us in on this big progress that they've had with the greenhouse program. So the materials arrived about three, four days ago, Glenn was saying, and it'll take a couple weeks and then the greenhouse will be up and running. It'll be ready to be up and running, I should say, on their property there at the food bank. And then the plan is to have more of these greenhouses pop up at different locations across the city. And then you'll have lots of fresh foods growing. That will be able to be donated to the London Food Bank and then go out to clients. And as Glenn said, you know, there's been a real change in the makeup of the food that they are able to give out to people now. It was, as he was saying a few years ago, only at 30% was fresh, fresh produce and things like that. Now it's upwards of 50-60%, which is fantastic. If I had any sort of green thumb, I would be happy (laughs) to uh, do that Grow a Row program, something like that. But unfortunately, I'm not talented when it comes to gardening. We've talked about this, but I am 
super happy to spread the word about it. And if there's anybody out there that wants to take part in that Grow a Row program, uh, definitely get in touch with the London Food Bank to find out how you ha- how, what you have to do to take part in it because it's pretty cool. And uh, hopefully there are lots of companies or groups out there who would like to do this greenhouse program too. Uh, I think it's a pretty neat initiative and it's it's a way to get fresh fruits and veggies to our community. And I love it. You'll love to see it. We need to take a break for our five o'clock news package with Andrew Graham. We will be back on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. I thought I would take a moment or two to just go over some of the totals for COVID-19, both locally and provincially, just really quickly. In today's report from the Middlesex on Health Unit, officials said that there were no new cases reported today. Yes. So our region's total case count is still at 679. Three people have recovered since the last report, bringing that total to 591. And our death toll is still the same at 57. That has not changed since June the 12th. There are currently at least 31 known active cases of COVID-19 in London and Middlesex. Officials reported five cases over the holiday long weekend, along with two recoveries. And there were five cases reported on Friday. So at least 627 of all of these cases have happened in London. 26 were in strathroy Caradoc, 12 were in Middlesex Centre. There are six cases each in North Middlesex and Thames Centre, one each in Lucan Bidolf and Southwest Middlesex. Our seven-day average for new cases, as of today, is 1.71. That's down from 2.28 on Friday. And our 14-day average is 2.35. So our test positivity rate is at 0.3% as of the week of July 19th. And that figure is up from the 0.1% the week before that. Hmm. So there's one outbreak that's still active at Victoria Hospital's Child and Adolescent Mental Health Unit. That outbreak was declared on July 24th after a staff member tested positive. It's among at least 27 outbreaks that have been reported in the region since the start of the pandemic. At least 21 have been at long-term care and retirement homes. At least 185 of our region's cases and 35 of its deaths have been linked to seniors' home outbreaks. So, one of the cases reported over the weekend did involve a staff member at a long-term care home But the case did not prompt an outbreak. So that's good news. People in their 20s remain the largest age group of cases in our region, with 143, or about 21% of cases, followed by people 80 and older, with 107, and about 15.7%. And the vast majority of cases involving people who are older than 80 are linked to outbreaks. 
Women make up nearly 60% of all cases in London and Middlesex, despite accounting for only 51.4% of the region's population. Those stats, according to 2016. The number of COVID-19 inpatients at LHSC is stable at five or fewer, and the hospital is not issuing a tally unless it rises above that number. And there are no COVID-19 patients at St. Joe's Healthcare, London, as of today. So there you go. There's some local news for you. Provincially, I was very interested to see what the weekend was going to be like. But truly, the real test of of how this weekend went, we'll know in like a week and a half, two weeks, right? Because it's always delayed a little bit. But provincially, Ontario reported fewer than 100 cases of the novel coronavirus each of the last two days. There were 88 reported yesterday and 91 reported today. So here's a quote from Health Minister Christine Elliott. Today, 29 of 34 public health units are reporting five or fewer cases, with 16 of them reporting no new cases, which is, it's us, London Middlesex. Good for us. Little pat on the back. Thanks, work. But don't don't get cocky. <laughs> uh, Christine Elliott also said that uh, over 42,000 additional tests were conducted over the last two days. It's great. That's very good. There, unfortunately, though, were four new deaths announced today. Our death toll here in Ontario is 2,792. And the reported number of hospitalized patients with COVID-19 is 78, with 28 in intensive care and 15 on ventilators. So that's what we're looking at. Provincially. And it is, it's good to see, again, that we're back down under 100 new cases each of the last two days. That is good. I just hope that that continues. I'm I'm one of those people who like, when you see a positive gain like that, you're like, yes, let's keep going. Let's not mess it up, please. So I'm hoping that everyone can just stay, stick with it. Stay with the program. Stick with it. We got this. Continue to wear your masks. Continue to wash your hands. Keep six feet apart from anybody who's not in your bubble. It's doable. We can do this. Let's not take our foot off the gas, as I keep saying. And you're like, yes, enough already. You say this all the time. I do. (laughs) But it's important. If I'm going to be a broken record for something, let it be for public health. (laughs) Honestly. But this is good. I'm glad. Let's keep seeing these these numbers. I'm a little concerned about what the fall is going to be like with schools, as I'm sure many, many people listening are. As I've said before, I don't envy any parents who are trying to figure out what they're going to do in the fall. There are no perfect solutions here. Keeping the kids home has serious consequences for their well-being, for not being in school. Also for parents who are then working from home, potentially, or trying to juggle off, you know, taking care of the kids and also work outside of the home, potentially. It's it's a mess trying to figure out what to do here. And my, again, like I said, my heart goes out to anybody who's trying to make that decision and figure out what's best for their families. So that's what we all have to be mindful of, too. Compassion, right? Don't rush to judge. Try to understand what people are going through. That's the best way forward. We are going to move forward now with a check of traffic and weather. When we come back, 
going to check in with producer Matt here to talk about a couple of stories that I found over the course of the weekend that I thought were pretty amazing. Gotta say, they involve finding individuals who were missing under rather incredible circumstances. Two separate stories, two separate cases, crazy discoveries. We'll tell you all about it coming up after Traffic and Weather on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I am your host, Jess Brady, joined alongside by producer Matt McNaughton. Hello. Good afternoon. Nice to see you after the long weekend. I hope you had a had a good few days off. I did. I hope you did as well. I did. Thank you. I have to say, over the course of the long weekend, I found a number of remarkable stories, as I tend to, because I'm on my phone all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I bookmark them, and I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll use this later and, and talk about this, because it's, it's crazy. Um, I, I love stories that are just kind of wild, where you think, what are the chances? Or yeah. something very bizarre happens. Weird news. Always one of my favorite categories. And I've got a couple of stories here that kind of fall under that under that heading. The first one especially. So this story is out of the UK. And it goes back initially to a, basically a missing persons case from like 2015. So the story here is that a man who was feared to have been murdered has now been found alive living in the woods. What? After five years of being missing. Who and the what now? Yeah, yeah. explain. <laughs> <laughs> it's really weird. I'm, I'm reading this from uh, The Guardian right now. So a man feared by police to have been murdered has been found living in the woods almost five years after he disappeared amid fears he was being exploited. So the last time that anyone saw Ricardas Puisas, and I apologize if I'm saying his name incorrectly, he's 40 now. The last time anybody saw him was on the 26th of September of 2015 at his, at his job, which was about 20 miles away from his house in Cambridgeshire. And he unexpectedly did not turn up to work two days later. And in November of that year, police launched a murder investigation. They even arrested somebody on suspicion of his murder, but they let that person go without charge later on. So hopes, however, were raised that he may actually be alive when a Facebook account was set up in his name and pictures were posted of a man that police believed to be him. So in November of last year, officers relaunched an appeal to find him. And in December, they said that they had received several reports of sightings. So on Monday, yesterday... Police said that Puisas had been found in hiding on July the 1st in the place where he lived before in Cambridgeshire. And officers believe that he fled because of fears for his safety. And in August of 2015, shortly before he went missing, a local resident raised concerns that Puisas has been exploited and may have been forced to move addresses within his community against his will. How crazy is that? That's wild. Went and lived off the grid in the forest. What? Now I'm really concerned about the circumstances that made him want to do that. Yeah, exactly. That, that just leads to more questions. A bigger story, perhaps. Indeed. So this is a, a fairly long uh, piece here that they've done. Um, but they are, uh, you know, further investigating the circumstances of his disappearance mm -hmm. um, and finding out what exactly went on. But yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. So 
Yeah, that's wild. Like, that's, could you uh, imagine? I could not imagine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully I'd never have to go through a situation like that. Indeed. <laughs> but no, that's because, you know, usually after that amount of time, it's generally pretty grim. Yeah. It's those types of, of timelines, you know, not not always the most positive. Yeah. Um, Speaking of timelines and exceptional circumstances and another situation you would not want to find yourself in, Matt, leads us to our second story. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine this. You're part of, you know, a Navy, a country's Navy in, sure. in, in an area. Yeah. And you're flying along and you see SOS marked out on the beach of an island. That's something out of a movie. Indeed. Or, or a, television, a television show, perhaps. It's happened. Oh, my. Recently. What is going on? <laughs> so this story I found on globalnews.ca, uh, three men were rescued from a tiny Pacific island after writing a giant SOS sign in the sand that was spotted from above. The men had been missing in the Micronesia archipelago for nearly three days when their distress signal was spotted Sunday on an uninhibited Pikelot Island? I'm not entirely sure of the pronunciation there, so I apologize. Um, But they were found by searchers on Australian and U.S. aircraft. And the Australian Defense Department uh, sent down a a helicopter, essentially, to the island and and gave these fellas some food and water because they'd been stranded there for a little while. But essentially, they they were on a boat going out from one atoll to another atoll, so another little area. Yeah. And they wound up drifting and they ran out of fuel. And in their boat, it was like a seven meter boat. So not like, not a, a teeny tiny vessel, but certainly also not massive. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so they wound up basically shipwrecked, <laughs> stranded on this island. And uh, searchers in Guam had asked for Australian help. And so the military ship Canberra was returning to Australia from exercises in Hawaii. And it diverted to this area and helped out with the U.S. search uh, for these for these fellas. And they found them. So they say that they were uh, 190 kilometers from where they had set out. Ooh. <laughs> wow. So it's just pretty intense. Like, thank goodness they found them okay. That yeah, they were seriously. Safe. Yeah, but uh, it's it's like out of a movie. Where is, is Tom Hanks? Where is Wilson? <laughs> yeah. Wilson! Man. Yeah, that's like a nightmare situation. God, that's... I, I'm not the biggest fan of boats or boating. Right, okay. Um, and this is why, <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't like, I'm, I'm fine with going out on like a lake or whatever, yeah, but safe. the ocean's spooky. Yeah. It's big. Scary. It's vast. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you can wind up 200 kilometers away from where you set out. That's right. <laughs> on a tiny little yeah, outdoor. Just going for a, out for a rip on a day trip. <laughs> Next thing <laughs> you know, the Australian military's picking you up. Yeah. Like Thanks, totally boys. insane. <laughs> I, I do like the water in general, and I do like boats, but like small boats, I'd be mm. okay with a yacht. Yeah. That's probably about as big as I'd go. That's fair. I'm not a fan of cruise ships, generally speaking. Titanic really ruined that for me. <laughs> <laughs> I've taken a few ferries. I've done the ferry oh, across the channel, the yeah. English Channel, which is, you know, That's fine. That's fine. That's a short trip. Not particularly long. No. no big deal. And when you're on a ferry, I don't know, it doesn't often feel like you're on a... When you're on a ferry that big, it certainly doesn't feel like yeah. you're on that... You, know, much you don't of a feel boat. vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, I'm so happy they were found. And Thank this is goodness. another reason why Matt's not going to go boating in Micronesia, in Micronesia <laughs> with his friends in a <laughs> seven meter boat. Yeah. It's probably a good idea. Or just make sure you have like a satellite <laughs> phone with you 
or some other distress single. Yeah, signal. seriously. You'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks for uh, chatting with me about those stories because I just thought they were pretty wild. Yeah, no problem. They were, wow. (laughs) Yeah, I just, as you said, would not want to be in those, either of those situations. Seriously. Sure. (laughs) We are going to take a break for our 530 News Package where I don't think we have any stories about people who are stranded. But Andrew Graham is going to get you all up to date on what's happening in the world. When we come back, we're going to take a trip outside of Earth's atmosphere and talk a little bit about Mars. Yeah. Gordon Ozinski co-author of a study out of Western and also director of Western's Institute for Earth and Space Exploration is going to be joining us to talk about uh, some very interesting information about water on Mars. Yeah. Gordon's going to get us all up to date on that. That's coming up next on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. Looking outside right now, we have lots of sunshine. really does look like a beautiful afternoon out there. And it's considerably less muggy than it has been over the last number of days, which is nice. It's currently 22 degrees, feeling like a very comfortable 25. Not bad at all. I'm liking it. Gotta say, it's a nice change. I turned off my air conditioning at my apartment on, what day was it? Sunday, I guess? Just because I was like, well, go away for a couple of days. I won't be here in my apartment. So, you know, why have the AC running? Or money in my pocket. <laughs> and it's looking like I probably won't have to turn it on at least for another few days. I'm hopefully, hoping anyway. Tomorrow, Wednesday, 22. Feeling like 23. Very nice. Thursday starts to creep up a little bit. 25. Feeling like 28. Friday, 27. Feeling like 30. And then once we get into the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, 28 both days, feeling like 32 on Saturday, feeling like 34 on Sunday. And uh, ooh, next Monday, that looks like it's going to be really steamy. 27, feeling like 37. Hi, that's, that's hot. That is warm. So we'll see. As we know, the weather in southwestern Ontario, very changeable. This forecast could change a couple of times from between now and then. So what we know about the immediate forecast for the next couple of days. It looks pretty good. Gotta say, it's looking pretty nice. So we'll see what where we go with from here, but I'm hoping that I can leave my my AC off a little bit. Give it a little breather. Give it a break. It's nice not to have it constantly running. Open the windows, get fresh air in. It's really nice. That's the thing about Earth's environment and climate. It's pretty, pretty beautiful. And we are very lucky to live on a planet that affords for generally comfortable conditions. Of course, that depends on where you are. But I'm just saying we have air to breathe so long as we continue to or try to smarten up here and protect our environment a little bit more. But what we were going to talk about in this segment was some work that Western has been doing, looking at conditions on Mars many, 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 many years ago. And there's a team of researchers who is, have been working very hard uh, to try and figure out exactly what the surface of Mars was like way back in the day. Because there's this dominant theory that Mars was warm and it was wet and that there were rivers with water flowing freely. Well, there's some work that's been done, as I've mentioned, uh, that essentially puts the kibosh on that and says, no, there were ice sheets over the surface of Mars. 
And we were meant to be speaking with uh, Dr. Gordon Ozinski, who is the director of Western's Institute for Earth and Space Exploration. Seems that we are having a bit of a problem connecting with uh, Dr. Ozinski, but we will, uh, you know, hopefully maybe be able to chat with him tomorrow instead. But uh, it's really fascinating thinking of all of the work that's being done uh, to learn more about our solar system and the different planets that there are around us. And just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking um, about uh, about what it would take to make living on Mars possible. And, you know, you have to have plants. You have to have the right kinds of plants. And interestingly enough, there's been a lot of work done, say, in the Canadian Arctic that applies to what we can learn about Mars. And uh, that also includes this work that's been done uh, by Dr. Ozinski and the rest of the team that's worked on this on this study. And it's really fascinating. And um, it's amazing to think where we could be technology-wise, science-wise, in just a few short years. Obviously, we've had um, a lot of leaps and bounds made by companies like SpaceX and, uh, you know, space programs internationally. It's amazing to think where we could be. Again, I don't think I'd want to be one of the people hopping into a <laughs> into a shuttle to go to Mars. I don't think so. Someone else can have my seat on that ship. No, thank you. I, I like being earthbound. But one day, someone more than likely is going to step foot on Mars and it'll be a crazy day. I don't know if it'll be within my lifetime, hopefully, because it would be an amazing thing to see. But yeah, I'm not sure. Not sure when it'll happen, obviously, but there are a lot of things that have to be uh, checked off the list before that can actually be a viable option. But people are learning things every single day, making amazing advancements every single day, and uh, it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time to know that we have so many resources available to us and so much learning is possible. So... We will try down the road to reconnect with uh, Dr. Gordon Ozinski uh, to find out more about this this study looking at how Mars, they believe, was covered in ice sheets, not flowing rivers. Very interesting. And what that kind of what implications that has for how we learn more about the Red Planet as as we move forward and what it means for possible exploration down the road. It's really cool. Amazing that we are so far away from that planet, but we do know things about it and we can piece together uh, certain certain facts. It's pretty cool. Gotta say, blows my mind what can be learned about uh, the other planets in our solar system and the advancements that are being made. Really cool. This has been a very busy show. We've had a lot of topics. We've gone over a lot of things. Producer Matt is is nodding sagely. Like, yes, we have. <laughs> <laughs> you never know what uh what a Tuesday after a long weekend is going to be like and what topics are out there, but it's very busy. And we've actually already started um, booking things in for tomorrow. Like I mentioned, we're going to talk to Dr. Don Abelson about this Axios interview that U.S. President Donald Trump did. Uh, also checking in with Neighborhood Legal Services, London and Middlesex. Uh, you've probably heard in the news today that um, the powers that be here in Ontario, the landlord tenant board. Uh, it is starting to process applications for evictions. Yeah, there was a moratorium during the height of the pandemic, right? So no one was being turfed out of their homes. Well, as of today, the board is starting to process those applications and I guess hear the cases of landlords who want to evict individuals. So tomorrow, we're going to chat with a representative of the Neighborhood Legal Services London and Middlesex uh, to talk about what people need to know if, say, they're faced with an eviction 
application, uh, what their rights are, who they can go to for help and advice. It's uh, it would be a terrifying situation for people to to be in and um, want to help spread the word on on how they can get support and access to information that they need as they move through that process. Also, Western has done some other very interesting research looking at prehistoric beavers. Yeah. (laughs) Imagine what a prehistoric beaver would look like. I'm almost a little bit afraid of it. But they have done some work to look at why beavers back in the day would take down trees. Now, currently, we know that, well, beavers take down trees so that they can use the wood for their dams. Not so with the prehistoric beavers. No, they were eating the trees for food. Hmm, interesting. So tomorrow we will be talking with Dr. Fred Longstaff, uh, who is the Canada Research Chair in Stable Isotope Science at Western. And uh, we're going we're gonna to chat with him about this study looking at prehistoric beavers and why. Why did the beaver take down trees prehistorically. Well, he's going to fill us in on all of that. So those are just a couple of the stories we're working on for you tomorrow uh, that will be on. And as always, we are on from three until six in your afternoons here on 980 CFPL. Right now, though, we are going to take a break for your uh, traffic and weather update. And when we come back, we'll check in with producer Matt again to talk about our bright spots of the day. That's coming up next on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady, joined alongside the ever-intrepid and excellent producer, Matthew McNaughton. Good afternoon. Hello again. It is that time of the show. It's time for Bright Spots. Yes. Yes. Love this part of the show. It's so much fun. You know, sometimes we can talk about some really heavy things. Yeah. And if we're not talking about heavy things, there are heavy things in the news. So it's really nice to be able to kind of share positive stuff. Yeah. Or just weird things sometimes. Yeah, sometimes they don't really fall into like <laughs> positive character char- uh, category. Yeah, but sometimes it's they're just like, hey, this was neat. This is kind of cool, <laughs> if not weird. Yeah. <laughs> and I can safely say, though, that our two bright spots today are definitely cute. And they're just definitely positive. Yes. So our first one, uh, I actually saw this last week and I held on to it because we had a few on Friday and, you know, it was like, well, we'll just hold on to this guy. Yeah. And this was a post that I saw on Instagram. And it's one of those like accounts that kind of uh, cultivates and curates content. So it's from all sorts of different people. But it's it's Nine Gag. If you if you, anybody listeners out there follow Instagram or are on Instagram and you follow Nine Gag, this is who it's from. So they put out this post from a Sarah Kemp. And it says, we've just had our patio done and my six-year-old has loved going out and helping the builder. So it made his day to receive this. What an example of kindness. And it's a pay packet for this little dude. And it's uh, these. this family is in the UK, as you'll be able to tell mm-hmm. by the time I finish this little, this little note. So it says pay par- packet. Harry. For passing bricks, passing little pavers, pointing brickwork, mixing cement, loading stone, taking pictures of blackbirds and spider, saying why more times than I have ever heard anyone say why, and being a smashing little guy, minus tax and national insurance, 10 pounds. <laughs> I just, I I love the, the closer of and being a smashing little guy. So That's... cute. Oh, man. Adorable. And also the caption from Nine Gag was pretty spot on, yep. too. They said, you're a builder, Harry, <laughs> which is a play on uh, on um, Harry Potter for anybody who is unaware when the Hagrid. Classic line. Yeah. yeah Hagrid, Hagrid shows says, up. 
Go ahead. They go to, you're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> is that the, what is it? They got like a lighthouse or something? I don't know. A what? <laughs> a wizard. <laughs> so this little guy, this Harry is a builder. Love it. Love it. So cute. And uh, I just, it's adorable when little little kiddos are just so excited about, you know, grown up jobs that are happening. And, you know, they, they hang out and they watch and they learn and, you know. It's like little kids, a, a friend's little guy uh, was obsessed with like construction workers too. And, um, you know, he would, when there was work happening on their street, he would camp out in their front their front living room or whatever and look out the window to see what was going on. It was like super sweet, you know, and they, yeah. they learn about, uh, you know, the different jobs and the different pieces of equipment that are being used. It's very sweet. So yeah. there you go. And good on the builder there for uh, doing something very, very kind and a nice gesture. It makes that little guy's little, that day probably, you know, if not longer. Yeah. It's the little things that, sure. uh, that count. Yeah, and little kids too, they, they talk about things for a really long time oh, yeah. when something exciting has happened to it them. It sticks with them. Yeah, absolutely, right? Well, I mean, makes sense too, because in their lives, not a lot has happened. Yeah. So big events, you know, things that excite them or, you know, make them happy, it, they stay with them a little bit longer. So, yeah, of course. Not like we adults who are so <laughs> jaded. <laughs> something nice happens, oh, we forget about it because everything else is going on. But, you know, yeah. good on this this builder. Kudos to him and to little Harry yeah. for being a smashing little guy. I also so really enjoyed the the line of taking pictures of blackbirds and spider. <laughs> <laughs> yes, blackbirds and spider. One spider. Just the one. Yeah. If he had taken <laughs> pictures of two spiders, perhaps he'd be up to 12 pounds instead of just 10. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm seeing some of the comments on the post as well. Oh yeah. One of the top comments with 2,700 likes is such wholesome child labor. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. I enjoy the other one that says, already taking the tax and insurance. Got to start them young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hey, you got to do things by the book. That's, yeah, of course. That's the way it is. Harry needs to learn. That's right. <laughs> there are rules in place for a reason. Yeah. So that's our first bright spot of the day. Young Harry being a, a lovely apprentice to the builders doing the patio at uh, his family's house. Our second bright spot of the day uh, is courtesy of the Good News Network. And it is... A 10-year-old young lady who is being called the Mini Monet, and she's painting these beautiful floral landscape paintings. And guess how much these these paintings are going for? Ooh, uh, how much? I don't know. They're selling for upwards of 10,000 pounds. What? 10,000 pounds. They're beautiful. I'm just looking at uh, you go, girl. some of the pictures here, and they're just absolutely gorgeous. So Daisy Watt only started painting four years ago when two of her grandparents were diagnosed with cancer, and she painted a picture to cheer them up. Her mom spotted the youngster's talent and asked if she'd like to paint a canvas to be displayed at a local gallery and auctioned for cancer charities. Bidders from all over the world fought to buy the work featuring forget-me-nots for those who had died and bright flowers for those who survived. The large painting varied in color tone, going from dark to light to represent the battle with cancer. It sold for 9,500 pounds and was so popular, 100 special edition prints were commissioned and snapped up by buyers from the likes of Canada and Hong Kong. Beginning with the with that moment in 2017, she has earned 50,000 pounds through her work and has donated it all to charity. That's incredible. Isn't it? That's incredible. And I I just looked up, uh, opened up the story here and they look, you know, and this is a 10 year old girl. Mm -hmm. um, incredible. Good for her. 
Absolutely. And I, I mean, I can't even draw a stick figure. I mean, I can. I mean, it's it's a stick figure. It's not very impressive. But yeah. this is beautiful. Like, truly, if you had told, if you kind of put that picture in front of anybody and said a 10-year-old had painted that, you yeah. would not believe them. I uh, I had uh, I did some painting this week. I'm with my mom and brothers. Right. and uh, uh, Like painting a house? Or no, like, like we, legit we did painting. some little, little canvases. Wow. And, uh, very cool. Oh, I suck. <laughs> that's not where I thought you were going with that <laughs> um, so I like seeing people who are genuinely talented at it yeah now, I don't have to be good but I can appreciate how good you are there and you go that's just man and the fact that she did it for charity mm-hmm. and the idea of like the forget-me-nots for those who died that's touching it's that's beautiful yeah good for her truly and you know it's like I can I can sort of draw sort of little cartoony type figures like not not very well like just yeah. little animals or whatever like I'll I'll draw them for my for my nephew Everett and like I'm always just excited when he knows what they are <laughs> <laughs> his mom would be like no he knew that was a fish and so that's that's great he knew that was a frog that's a win that's a win yeah you know so anytime it's at least distinguishable I'm like sweet okay cool yeah but this is just this is truly beautiful and yeah. uh amazing amazing she's so little and I love that her name is Daisy yeah, that's so a good one. So cute. Yeah. So there you have it. That was my uh, second bright spot of the day. And uh, I think that's a, a pretty good note to end things on and wrap things up on. Yeah, I think so. Two, two lovely stories about, you know, kids doing the good things. Yeah, just being little sweethearts and, and brightening people's days. So it's It's hard to find a story about a child that doesn't kind of lift your mood. Yes. You know, so I had nowhere else better to end it. There you go. Well, Matt, thank you so much for all of your help today. I appreciate it. No problem. It's Tuesday, so we're closer than we think. That's right. Tomorrow's the midway point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Wine Wednesday. Can't go wrong. Ooh. <laughs> Until then, Matt, I hope you have a great night. Oh, oh, thank oh. you. you too. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know you turned off your mic. Sorry, fella. Whoops. <laughs> Whoops-a-daisy. <laughs> well, thank you all to uh, our our guests that were on with us this afternoon to chat and give us their insight. Many, many thanks to the 980 CFPL team, everybody that's working hard every single day, and also to you listeners. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate that you uh, choose to share your afternoons with us here and uh, to tune into what we're listening to. I appreciate it. Until tomorrow, I hope everybody has a good evening and a good day into tomorrow. And be safe, be well, wear a non-medical mask and wash your hands.